Sorry, guys, I'm not looking at the monitor. Here I am. Hi. Um, So this is not gold. A quick way you could figure it out is by density. So it's the old tale of Archimedes' crown. Ever heard of that? This guy, Archimedes, they made him a crown that was supposed to be of pure gold, but it wasn't. And the way they found that out was through uh, density. So this has a density of about four and a half grams per milliliter. Uh, Gold is 19, so it'd be a lot heavier. So this is fool's gold, right? Uh, Pyrite, it's uh, iron sulfide Uh, uh, on Amazon, 15 bucks. (laughs) If this were actual gold, it'd be worth about 50 grand, roughly. So I'd be letting it, putting it down on red at the casino if I were... (laughs) Um, do not be deceived. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, that's uh, let no one deceive you. That's in Second Thessalonians 2. Beware of false prophets. That's Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. We have, uh, especially in the, well, throughout the epistles, The danger, and immediately in the early church, the danger of false prophets, false teachers, false doctrines. And they have, they took off right from the beginning. Satan infiltrated the church with his weapon, you know, the weapon that he would use that would be so effective against the church. And I think it's more effective than sin. I don't know. You know, it depends on how you measure effectiveness. Sin's pretty effective. But um, falsehood, false doctrines, false beliefs. And in our study, we're, we're looking at, and today we'll look at the Lord's words concerning prophecy uh, in the Gospels. It is his longest and most extensive discourse on prophecy. Christ is a king, he's a prophet, and he's a priest. And it's at, when he's done with this discourse, he's going to switch over from prophet to priest. And act as a priest. And actually sacrifice himself as a priest. Which is amazing. And so, uh, as we look at what we're going to look at today, there's there's a lot of falsehood stated about it. We must make sure that we don't get caught up in the things that some do. And I, and I think pride is the problem. The pride of wanting to know everything. I, I kind of, I like to call it the pride of knowledge. I know that, I know that, I know that. Uh, And when God doesn't tell us, you don't know it. And that's fine. There's a reason why he doesn't tell us. Some things. And it's those things that we don't know that we have to just admit we don't know. 
And there's application of that to our lives in terms of initially in humility. And, you know, when you don't know, you're looking, right? One of the main, the main theme of today is look up, but don't fall in a hole. That's my title, as you can be looking up and then, you know, you're, you have to also look down every once in a while because we've got to deal with life. But Jesus is going to tell us, straighten up and look, because I'm coming. And we don't know when, kind of how is a little bit told to us, but, you know, it's, it's something that God wants us to keep looking for and learning about. And that's important. So don't fall for this. This will get you thinking that you know things that you don't. And... Uh, so we'll just leave that there. Hands off. I'm just kidding. Let's open up in prayer. Let's thank God for our time together to uh, hear his word and to learn these principles that are of extreme importance to us. Also know that we're preparing ourselves to hear God's word. So with humility and reverence, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for you and your son, Jesus Christ, his gift to us, your gift to us through him, his willingness to sacrifice himself in our behalf. We thank you for the prophetic word, the things that you revealed to us through your word that guide us in knowledge of the future, but not about everything. We know, Father, that we can leave all things in your hands. And what we don't know, we know that you'll take care of. We know that you'll take care of it marvelously. We also know there's a reason for things that we don't know. And you, Father, are our gracious, loving, merciful God who has delivered us and will deliver us from all things. So we ask, Father, through your Spirit that we would be encouraged and enlightened in our everyday lives, living today in light of the things that are coming in the future. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, before we sing, I want to say that uh, what a great time we had yesterday at the quote-unquote picnic, more ga- uh, gathering, party, whatever you want to call it, hoedown. Uh, thanks, Tom and Karen, for hosting us. It was awesome. Your property is beautiful. Um, And also, uh, August, not this coming week, but the week after, no weekday classes, Tuesday through Thursday, August 22nd through the 24th. I don't think I put it on the website, so I'll try and remember to put it up today. All right? All rise, please.
kills and stones, meaning that this is for perpetual and it has been happening and it will continue to happen. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. How often? This is all throughout Old Testament history, and you were unwilling. And that is the, um, the, the tragedy. That word unwilling is the tragedy of the human race. If you want to sum up the tragedy of the human race, there it is. Unwilling. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. He doesn't say my house. He called it my house before or my father's house. But here he calls it your house because they've killed the prophets and stoned those who were sent to her. So your house has been left to you desolate. The same word is going to be used of the tribulation. Now that a desolation and the title of the beast, the, the abomination of desolation. Desolation means destruction. That there will be nothing, nothing of blessing, nothing of light, nothing of good. And that is coming. There's some of it here and now, but it's restrained. Uh, some of it will hit your life at times. And we'll talk about that today. Uh, at times it's going to hit our lives individually or those that we love. Uh, but there's a time coming where it's going to be worldwide and the most intense, painful that it has ever been. So bad will it be that people, even kings, will long. Kings, people with power will long for the mountains to fall on them that they may die. That's in Revelation chapter 6. That's the tribulation. 39. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then in the very next verse, he leaves. This is one of the most dramatic moments in human history. One of. You'd say the cross is the most dramatic. But this is where the Messiah, the Shekinah glory, who is in the temple, has left it. Right? We see this in the Old Testament. There's a marvelous passage, and I'm pretty sure it's in Ezekiel, where the Shekinah glory is at the altar, and then he's at the front door, and then he's in the mountains, and then he's gone. Right? And it's all a depiction of their, their idol worship, that they're going into captivity, and God is leaving them forever. No, he says it here. But I ain't coming back until you want me to. And that's going to happen. At the end of the tribulation, there'll be... Many Jews will die in the tribulation. Many. But there will be a remnant of believers, saints in the tribulation, who will call for the Lord, who will mourn over the one who is pierced. And this will be fulfilled. So no, he's not leaving them forever. But this is truly a synopsis, a snapshot of human history in which God has given his gift of love and salvation to the human race, and, they, and that's to a stubborn and stiff-necked world. Now, I thought about those words stubborn and stiff-necked in terms of myself. You know, before I believed in Christ as my Savior, I was about 24 years old at the time. Uh, you know, what, how many times has I, had I rejected him before? How many times afterward did I reject his calling on my life? You know, even for any believer, if you were the greatest of believers, these words, stiff-necked and stubborn, often describe you. And that's, you know, the, his, the, the drama of human history, from Genesis to Revelation. Stiff-necked, stubborn people whom God loves. Now, the very next event in Matthew is him leaving the temple. 
So often, in God's this gracious drama, this wonderful, uh, miraculous drama that God has unfolded in human history, in which even the disciples who who understand who this is, they they don't completely everything right because they don't they didn't really believe that he would be resurrected. But what they did understand is that he was the promised Messiah. So at least that much they get, and. They've heard him, and they just heard. They were in the temple with him hearing this, I leave your house to you desolate. And like us all, we're, we get caught up in things, and we, we point to something, and we say, hey, isn't that beautiful? And God says, that's going to be destroyed. I think at times, items in your life, people, events that you've pointed to, and in your own heart, or maybe you said it to somebody, you say, isn't that wonderful? Whether it was money, or it was a girl, or it was a guy, or it was a thing, or it was a vacation, or it was a whatever. Not that any of those things are wrong in their place, right? And if they're before the will of God, all of them are wonderful blessings. The disciples are going to point to the temple and say, isn't it beautiful? And is it? It's gorgeous. This temple has been under restoration. By, it started by Herod the Great in 20 B.C. This temple has been under restoration for 50 years. Ironically, it will be completed in 64. And then God's going to crush it in 70. Now they're going to have a grand opening ceremony in 64. And then it's going to be gone. In 70. So often in God's salvation drama, we get caught up admiring the wrong things. And God, in His graciousness, corrects us. He says, No, that's not as beautiful as you think it is. That's meant for destruction. Let me show you what's beautiful. And He does. Matthew 24 1. It's God's gracious correction. It's so awesome. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came to the point of point, to point out the temple buildings to him. So Jesus leaves the temple. There's a valley there. It's called the Kidron Valley. You descend down into it, and then up the Mount of Olives they go. And as they ascend up the Mount of Olives, and you can go on YouTube and see pictures of this, except now you see the Dome of the Rock on there, but you can see the temple complex, and they can see the temple and these beautiful limestone bricks that were massive. They weighed tons that made up this temple. And they pointed out to him. And he said to them, and let me show you what in Luke's account, talking about the temple, this is what they do. Matthew doesn't include it, but Luke does. Talking about the temple, that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. Look, Jesus, look how beautiful this temple is. What did he just say about that temple? Have they already forgotten this, walking up the Mount of Olives? Yeah, just like we do. We could learn marvelous principles here in Bible class, forget them by the time we leave the parking lot. I could teach them and forget them by the time I leave the parking lot. <laughs> Jesus came out from the temple. He said, do you, in verse 2, he said to them, Do you see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. They're like, uh, what? Now these are real. These are real guys. These are real people. 
who are like, um, you know, <laughs> we're, who were we talking about this with, I think, yesterday? We're like, um, when they were all confused, they probably all talked Peter into asking him. This is why Peter in the Gospels is always the guy sticking his foot in his mouth. They're like, Peter, Peter, ask him what he said. You know, ask him what that was. And Peter's all like, okay. And uh, I don't know. Sorry, Pete. Um, The house that the Lord just said is going to be left to you desolate is the very one the disciples point out to him and say, Jesus, look how beautiful it is. Huh? We all do it. It's beautifully adorned. God says, yeah, but that's destined for destruction. You understand this. Second Peter chapter 3, this whole world is destined for destruction. Not that we can't admire and love things. Of course we do. But their point, and it's significant here. They're not just, it's not like John saying to Pete, huh, what a neat temple. And yeah, I love it. Uh, it's them saying to the Lord just after he said that it would be left desolate. Jesus, do you not see how beautiful this is? And, uh, you know, the temple's going to be destroyed. It will be destroyed just as Jesus is going to tell them in 70 A.D. Uh, almost 40 years, roughly, from, the, from this day, the day that they're talking. And Jesus is going to say, this temple will be destroyed. Now, maybe a neuron goes off in their brains, which, you know, it, it does for us. Because we can keep going back and looking at the written scripture. But Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And he wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his body. He was talking about himself. And that plays here because while they're pointing to this physical temple as being beautiful, Jesus says it's going to be destroyed and he's going to be destroyed. And that temple still hasn't been rebuilt. It will be rebuilt in the tribulation. It has to be because the beast goes in there. But that's something else. It's Paul calls it the temple of God. But, you know, is it something that God would really honor? I don't think so. Not with the abomination of desolations placing himself in the Holy of Holies as, the, as God. I doubt it. But see, this temple, it's still, two, almost 2,000 years later, it hasn't been rebuilt. But the body that was destroyed of Christ, that was not rebuilt, but resurrected. And then ascended to heaven. So Christ, who is the true temple, will be destroyed. And when he is destroyed, will he rebuild a temple? You bet he will. There's one in heaven, in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, it's called the holy place in heaven, the tabernacle made without hands. It's in heaven. That we would call the new Jerusalem that's coming to this earth someday. Well, not this earth, but a new earth. And, but still now, he has, we talked about this last week, that he will rise again and make a new house. But the house now is going to be his church. And this has major significance to us because now that we're the temple of God, and we looked at this this week, that God judged the kings of Judah based on how they treated the temple. You had great kings who honored the Mosaic law and treated the temple as holy, and then there were other kings who we saw, was it Ahaz, 
or Ahab. It was Ahaz who just actually closed the door of the temple and wouldn't let anybody in. King Manasseh put false altars, altars to false gods of Damascus, in the temple. Boldly. How they treated the temple was how they saw God as holy. And now here we are. We're the temple of God. How we treat our lives, how we treat ourselves, even our physical bodies in the service of God. Romans 12.1 says to present your bodies as living and holy sacrifices to the Lord. Meaning I am here to serve you. Am I doing anything to my physical body that hinders my service of the Lord? That's a great question. You answer that between God, right? You and God. Don't let anybody judge you on that stuff. But also be honest with your Lord. How about your time? How about your soul? How about your mind? What are you feeding your mind and your soul? There's a lot of stuff around nowadays that decay the soul. There always has been. It's just now it's lightning fast to your screen before you had to journey a little to find it. Now it finds you. But like not everything here is bad. Not everything in the internet is bad or on your computer. But it can be. You know, how are we treating this temple? And the house of God becomes a common theme throughout the whole scripture. Right? Because this temple doesn't go away. It comes back. And in the millennial reign, there's another temple that God built, described in Ezekiel. So by his sacrifice, Jesus will, when he dies, the veil in the temple is torn asunder from top to bottom. Meaning the Holy of Holies is born open. And then he'll make every one of the apostles the very temple of God, including everybody in the church, will be the house of God and dwelt by God forever. And that is a beautiful story. That is a dramatic, you know, climax. It's kind of like one of those semi-climaxes where you get to like something that's wonderful, but then yet something better is to come. And in the church age, something wonderful has happened. To sinners, undeserving by grace, they have been made the temple of the living God, who will never be left desolate by him, ever. And that is you. And that is me. And think of the, think of the marvelous amount of opportunities and possibilities that opens for you. And it depends on how we treat this temple that we will either see and conquer or not conquer, but take advantage of those opportunities or do nothing with them and follow after the things that will be destroyed. We can do that. Paul writes in Colossians 3, seek the things above where your life is is hid with Christ. Don't seek the things upon this earth. God will provide them. Jesus said, follow me and I will give you the desires of your heart. All these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It is truly the key to life. So, the disciples are like, what? And so they ask him some questions. They ask him four. So we have the Olivet, Olivet Discourse comes from this. Olivet meaning he's on the Mount of Olives when he speaks this. This is just to the disciples. Uh, We're very fortunate to have it all. It's in 
the three Gospels, what we call the synoptic Gospels. Synops just means similarity or they're from the same source. They're common, common amongst each other, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John stands out as a different God, not different, but has different information in it about the Lord's life. But of all three of these, you have to actually compare them to get the whole thing because not one of them includes everything. Why do you think God does that? There's uh, there's probably a hundred reasons. Each of the Gospels have a different audience. That's one of the things. Matthew is writing to Jews, and so it's much more Old Testament-based, Messianic-based. Luke is writing to Greeks. Luke's writing as a historian, so it's actually more chronological. And Mark uh, is is, uh, emphasizing Christ as a servant of God. And uh, it's very, Mark is very similar to Matthew, but with some slight differences and much shorter. Um, and John emphasizes the deity of Christ. The, uh, and so, as you compare them all, and what God, first off, there's different audiences, but secondly, God, it would be so easy. I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. We were talking, of course, you're at a party, a church party, and you're talking about eschatology with people, you know, like talk about a nerd party, right? Like, hey, where was at the party? Oh, they were talking about end times and eschatology and stuff. Ooh, sorry I missed it, you know. <laughs> Leave me off the invite list next year, yeah. So, um, God could, Jesus could so easily say, because they're going to ask him these questions. I'll give them to you in a second. And he could say, all right, first, let me give you the questions in order that you ask them. He doesn't. He gives them the answers out of order. And, you know, our, our you know, chronological minds want things in order. Then, you know, his answers are kind of cryptic. At times, some of the things are clear, but some of them aren't. So he'll be talking for a while and giving them answers, and then he'll say, Before these things. And we're all, you know, if you want to get your eschatology right, because heck, you can't be at a Christian party and have the wrong eschatology. (laughs) Can't be a post trib guy at a pre trib party, you will be an outcast. No dessert for you. Um, you know, it, it's we want it. And again, I think it's the pride of knowledge. We want to make sure that we can tell everybody that we know our eschatology down pat. We can only know what's revealed to us. And don't try any farther. I'm not saying, I shouldn't say don't try. Try. But don't fill it in for yourself. And be the one that says, well, I know. But you see, Jesus could say, well, look. This happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens, then this happens. And this one will happen at this time, and this one will happen at this time. It's not hard to say. But he says stuff like, before these things. And we want to say, well, before what thing? Before everything? Or the thing you just said? Like which? And yeah, no, fortunately, nobody interrupts him and says, whoa, 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 back up. You know, get out your whiteboard, Jesus, and draw me some dispensational charts or something so that I can make sense of this. 
And I, I think part of it, and again, when I say I think, you know, it's my opinion, but I, I think part of it is humility. And I think the other part is he wants us to keep searching. You know, if you don't know, when, if you know the Lord's returning, but you don't know when, you're always expecting it, right? If he gave us signs before his return, which at times it, th- it seems that he does, but then at many times he does not. And in this discourse, he's going to say, you don't know the day or the hour. And, but, but you just said about the beast and about the, 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 uh, you know, the other stuff, signs in heaven and you know, all that. What do you mean I don't know the day or the hour? And he says, Exactly. Is it this one or that one? Yes. Sort of. And, you know, as I, as I get into more of this, I'm, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate the fact that it keeps us thinking and asking and wondering and searching and, most of all, looking. Looking. So they ask him, when will these things be? What's the sign of your coming? Oh, that they are coming. Sorry. So initially this is, and he's going to answer this. When will these things be? He's going to answer when, not in terms of what day, but he's going to answer when Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. What's the sign of Jerusalem being destroyed? And, and the temple. Uh, he's going to answer that. And it already happens. What would be the sign of your coming? That's third question. And then fourthly, what's the sign of the end of the age? All right, so he's going to answer these, not all in order. And some of them not as uh, clarified as we would like it. But we, we take what he gives us, and with the rest of the scripture, we continue to pursue. Uh, when will these things be? The things refer to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. That's the first question. The second question refers to the signs just before it. So you can take the first two questions and kind of lump them together. You know, when you just said the temple is going to be destroyed, when and what and how do we know when that's going to happen? And he's going to answer that. When it comes to your coming, the sign of your coming, that's the second coming. Now, remember that when Jesus dies, They all lose hope. So when they say, what will be the sign of your coming, do you think in their minds that they're thinking about him returning from heaven? Doubt it. I mean, we can't say for sure, but I doubt it. Because when he died, they all lost hope. They all despaired. When they found him resurrected, they're completely shocked. You know, you love that scene in Luke 24 where he shows up in the room. But the doors are all locked, and he's like, hey, guys. And they're like, Jesus. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I am. And then he explains to them. This is about my, I, I'm jazzed by the fact that now there's stuff about this I still don't understand. I'm working on it, but I hope I understand more. And I think that's going to be a lifelong pursuit. But I'm pretty sure after reading guys like, say, Pentecost or Schaefer or any of the others, Fruit and Bombs, another one has a great book on it, um, that even they admit that they don't know everything about it. They've been studying it a lot longer than I have. 
That gives, and you know, but we still want to pursue it. But that's that's the whole point, I think, is to pursue, and and you keep learning, and you keep knowing, and you'll. I think we find out things along the way that we weren't expecting to find. But then, and that's a great thing. But if someone comes along and hands you one of these things and says, "This is the gold," and uh, I say, "It's not heavy enough. <laughs> you know, it's, this isn't right." Like there's things that we just don't know. It's okay. It's okay. So when it comes, when they, the second coming, they are, who knows what they're thinking about the second coming. You know, when will be the sign of your return? They probably think he's going to a faraway country to prepare some army maybe or something to return and to kick the Romans out and to establish his kingdom. Because, you know, when, he, when they do go, when he's resurrected and he points out to them in, in, from the Old Testament scriptures all that he was to go through, right? This is what I was saying this a second ago, that they, they knew all those scriptures from Moses and the Psalms and so on. And the prophets, as grown up Jews, they knew them, at least knew of them. And when he explained them and explained them in light of all that he went through in his life, his death and his resurrection, they were like, they got it, you know. But it's the same scripture that they had always learned. But it was after his resurrection and after he explained it that they figured it out. And I think after rapture, after all this is over, we'll be looking at the same word and going, all right. And there'll be no differences. That'll be the one of the most excellent parts of heaven. Does he uh, second when he uh, signs of your coming? Does he mean rapture? No, he would not, because the rapture is imminent. He's going to give signs before he comes. So that's the second coming, right? So there's two main events under consideration here. First is the judgment upon Jerusalem, and the return of Christ. Right? So you can couple. Sorry. You can couple the first two questions and the second two questions as they're related. And just to simplify it, I think simplicity is important here. When's the judgment on Jerusalem coming? What are the signs of it? When are you coming? What are the signs of that? Uh, all, so then in all three Gospels, he's going to start out similarly. Uh, we can, where are we going to go? We're going to go to Luke 21. Go to Luke 21, 7. All three are in agreement about what he calls birth pangs. And birth pangs are an excellent description of this. He says, There will come false Christs, wars and rumors of wars. Nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes. This is stated in all three Gospels. So, Wars and rumors of wars probably refer to all wars, could be local wars, but then there's nation against nation and, and kingdom against kingdom, and that's sort of like a bigger war or a world war. And so a lot of eschatologists see the world wars, World War I and II, as, as significant in this, but obviously uh, they have come and gone. You can imagine if you knew these, pa- these passages in the gospel and you were going through the world war, you would be expecting the rapture immediately 
But no, you'd have gotten it wrong. Uh, And famines and earthquakes. And then Luke includes terrors and great signs from heaven. Look at uh, verse, well, let's read the whole thing. Verse 7, they questioned him saying, teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign of when these things are about to take place? Now, the the other questions are not in this gospel. Just if you're looking for all four questions, you have to look at all three gospels. But anyway, and he said, see to it that you're not misled. Fool, don't buy the fool's gold. See to it that you're not misled. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is near. Don't go after them. Many false messiahs and many claims about end times. Don't go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take first place first, but then the end, uh, but the end does not follow immediately. I butchered that, sorry, verse nine. When you hear of, when you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. And he continued to say to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So all three Gospels have this, um, and this is how he starts. And, uh, you know, these are called birth pangs. You know, this is not yet the end. He says, but the end does not follow immediately. Uh, and the nation, right, some people separate nation against nation from the first mention of wars. And they use that to say that the age that we're in now after the world war is near the end of the birth pangs. And that's fine. I mean, you could say that all you want. I don't think anybody knows that. But here's the beauty of birth pangs uh, for all you women. <laughs> I'm sorry, for all us guys who have not felt it uh, but have experienced it. You know, they start off, your contractions are what, however apart, and then they get closer and closer, and it gets more painful and more painful, and then when the time comes, it's terrible. And now they have wonderful drugs to help with that. But, um, you know, it, it's birth pangs are, well, where are we in the birth? And how do you even know? It's a perfect image for this. Because some of these things have been going, like when an earthquake's been happening, they have increased in frequency, actually. But, we, you know, can we really say that for sure? How long have they been actually measured and so on? But um, famines? How long have there been famines? They've been for, around forever. But then we, we know also in the beginning of the tribulation, when the, after the rapture and the tribulation happens, in the first half, half of the tribulation, these things ramp up magnificently. Uh, not for the people on earth won't call it magnificent, but it, it's um, the intensity of them increase. And so, you know, it's, it's just vague enough for you to say, you know, I could be near the end or at least near the tribulation. They could have said that during World War II. They could have said that when, you know, the Romans are destroying Carthage. Uh, whenever, you know, like whenever things have gone bad, and a lot of these words would apply. But Jesus says, see to it that you're not misled. 
That's pyrite polished. This this guy here, that that's polished, and that that could fool even more, right? That's a polished lie. Is more palatable. It looks. Right? You can take these lies and make them look more and more legit. And so, see to it you're not misled, is what he says. So, what he's going to describe here, and I'm not, I, I, for the sake of time, you know, I, I probably already overloaded you too much, but that's okay. We'll, we'll work our way through it. Uh, you should have seen what I had before I revamped this, this message for this morning. Uh, the apostles will be persecuted, and the gospel will explode throughout the world. Uh, this is what he says. Now, after he talks about the birth pangs, these are not in order of how he says them. I'm just trying to make an, uh, just an outline for you, much of which you know. Then there will be the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. There will be one apostle who survives that. Not that he'll be in Jerusalem at the time. I can't recall whether anybody thought that he was in Jerusalem at the time, but um, all right, they, we're going to focus on that last here. Then there's the you know the birth pangs because the birth pangs end up going all the way to the tribulation, and so I'm, you know if we try to get some kind of chronology after the destruction of Jerusalem, the birth pangs continue and they're going to continue until the beginning of the tribute, the first three and a half years of the tribulation, the birth pangs are there. They're still there. Wars, nation against nation, you see them. There's tons of wars. And famine and earthquake. As God blows the trumpets, or sorry, the first thing he does is break the seals on the book through Revelation 6. Uh, it's awful. And describes exactly what Jesus says here. So that, you're in birth pangs right now. Right? Temple's already gone. We're in birth pangs. And uh, then comes the tribulation. Jesus is going to split it up into two halves, just like Revelation does, just like the book of Daniel does. And then the signs of the second coming, and then the second coming. Jesus is going to mention that this later on, that you're not going to know the day of the hour, so we can jot the rapture right in here. Although I didn't put it in this slide, but... He does mention the fact that he's coming when we don't expect him. So we would call that the rapture. He doesn't call it the rapture, but, you know, we could. Whew, right? It's a lot. So what we're going to just focus on this morning is this. So look at Luke 21:12. So we're going to focus on us, if you don't mind. And while we're doing that, we're going to focus on us in light of all that's coming. Because there's that, even though you're not going to go through the tribulation, most all evidence points to the fact that the church will not, that the principles of what you're in now and what's coming and this whole drama of salvation over all of human history applies to you today. Because the word tribulation is used of you. Not the tribulation, but tribulation in your life. God gives it to you, allows it for you, so that you can build 
character. As James write, rejoice in your trials, your various trials, for they increase your endurance and give your faith quality. Yeah, love those trials, right? The tribulation brings about tribulations in our lives. But it's not the tribulation. It's yours. And we never know when they're coming, correct? So Jesus says in verse 12, this is unique to the Gospel of Luke. The other three Gospels don't have this. This is unique to Luke 21:12. before all these things. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I don't mean that as a swear word. Um, what things? Before all the birth pangs. And so, yeah, you know, it, it's hard. It, Jesus doesn't allow us to take a pin and put it on a date. He never does. You've got to love it. He's saying to us, these events are certain, but when they're going to happen, that's up to me. And actually, some of the events, I don't even know myself. Like, when am I coming back? Not a clue. Did he sound very worried about that when he told the disciples that even I don't know? He didn't sound worried to me. The Father's got it all in his hands. Don't be worried, little children. Don't fret. It's all good. And that's what we're going to see here today. It's all good. Before all these things, notice now he's talking to the apostles. They will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. That's the explosion of the gospel by these apostles. They don't have a clue when he's saying this now, but their lives are going to be so used by him. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourself. In other words, don't be afraid. I lo- you know, and I love in verse 14, he says, don't prepare. Some pastors have taken this to say they don't have to prepare for their messages. Uh, I, think the <laughs> I think the effectiveness of their ministries would go hand in hand with that. But he's talking here about when you're thrust into a great amount of persecution, don't worry about it. Be like, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? Oh, God's got gotcha. you. God's got gotcha. you. As I, I think Tom and I, we were talking about this yesterday. I, I read this account by somebody's uh, uh, commentary of David facing Goliath. And, you know, David, it's, it's very applicable here. He runs to the battle line, it says, and he says, I'm going to take your head off of you today. And Goliath laughs at him. And David says, you have defied the God of Israel. The battle is the Lord's. And David gets five stones. I guess just in case he missed, and he slings a stone. Now, does David run up to Goliath and just kind of like try to punch him in the gut? That's all he could reach. Guy's nine foot tall. Does he? He doesn't get close. Why? Because David's going to hit him with a rock. David runs around Goliath probably. At least he stays, I don't know, 40, 50, 100 yards away. He's not stupid. Right? He didn't just say, oh, let go and let God. I'm going to go right up to Goliath and you know, give him a bear hug or something. Goliath would have sliced him in two. He's like, no, the battle's, battle's the Lord's, and I'm going to stand over here. 
I'm going to hit you square in the head with a rock. Right? He used his acumen, his skill as a warrior, as well as his faith. And the same here, like you're going to use your, you can't just say, well, I'm not going to prepare. I'm not going to know any doctrine. I'm not going to know any Bible. I'm not going to know anything about the Lord. And he's just going to give me words to say. No, he is not. Is you prepare yourself through wisdom of God's scripture. And then with that wisdom, don't fret. It's there. And God is going to bring it to you. In fact, enjoy it. Wait and see what God's going to do. And Jesus tells him this. And so this part of this is the same that we'll see uh, two more times here in this discourse. Is He's going to say to them and to us, there are going to be times when you're in grave trouble. During birth pang time. There's going to be times where you're in grave trouble. I am going to deliver you. Now you've got to be smart. It's not just I'm going to grab you by the nape of the neck and pluck you out. You've got to hear what I say, and even when things look absolutely dire, and it looks like you're going to die, know I'm going to deliver you. Because sometimes these tests are going to be very, very bad, you know, or they're just—it's going to look bad. So, verse 14. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. That's absolutely applicable today. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And of the listeners here, James, son of Zebedee, will be dead in about ten years. He'll be martyred. He's the first to go. You will be betrayed by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. Doesn't that sound odd to you that he would say that right after he said some of you are going to die? But what does he mean? Oh, you're welcome to interpret it yourself, actually. Really, I mean that. You You don't need some pastor to tell you what that means. It means that even if you were martyred, I will care for you. Maybe he means your entrance into the kingdom of heaven will be just magnificent. Who knows? What he means is you'll be fine. Not a hair of your head will perish, and by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Some think that means those who survived the tribulation, and some think it means that the apostles who are going to survive through the destruction of Jerusalem, which is only one, but uh, by your endurance, you'll gain your lives. And whatever... You know, however you interpret that in terms of time, and again, time is very elastic here, is that endurance is necessary. Correct. You know, whether they gain their lives, in other words, does he mean they're not going to die? Does he mean they're going to survive the tribulation? Does he mean they're going to survive the, the initial persecution? On and on and on. We don't know that. But what we can say for sure is that endurance is absolutely necessary. So this is fulfilled in the book of Acts, in Acts 4, 3 through 4. And they laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day. And many of those who had heard the message believed. And the number of the men came to be about, the number of men came to be about 5,000. 
Acts 12.2. So just as he said, they're going to persecute you, but it's going to give an opportunity for your gospel. Immediately this is fulfilled. And as he said about being martyred, that's Acts 12.2. The first one was Acts 4.3-4. Acts 12-2, and he, Herod, had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And then comes the sign of destruction to Jerusalem. Now, hold on to the thought that not a hairier head's going to be hurt, right? You're going to be delivered. Don't worry about what you're going to say. It's going to be great. You're going to be, and that, that's supernatural. By God, as you prepared through learning, you, know, you don't have to prepare for that situation of persecution. God is going to give you the things that you need to know, and it's going to be great. Then verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to his people. To this people, sorry. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And this right there to verse 24 ends this parenthesis that Luke has in verses 12 through 24, which is not found in the other two Gospels. And it ends here with this Gentiles are going to rule the world. Right until when the coming of the Lord. <clears throat> now here is the fulfillment of this question. Oh, where's my question? What will be the sign that they're coming, the destruction of Jerusalem? And here is where he answers that in, Luke, in Luke's accounts, the place where he answers it. Uh, and notice what he says. He says, "Well, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies." Doesn't that sound like an obvious thing? How do you know when Jerusalem's going to be destroyed? Well, when the armies are around it. Oh, thanks. <laughs> like, when do you know that that bully's going to beat you up? Just before his fist hits you in the eye. Um, how is that of help? And if you're surrounded by the army, which there's only one army in view here is the Roman army and they're pretty good at what they do how are you going to get out and when they hear this not a clue I mean I'm sure it went right over their heads but not a clue you look at this passage if it were before 66 AD you would be reading this passage and go I don't get it And you wouldn't. But then history happens. Just like when the rapture happens and everything happens, we're all going to go, oh, I get it. For everything, you know. But there's the first Roman to uh, assault the city because Israel, Judea, the Jews, 
were, uh, became zealots. There was a whole bunch of these guys called zealots, and they were refuting Roman rule. And the Romans put, didn't put up with that. They never did, you know. And they're putting down the rebellion. They surround the city. His name is um, Cestus Gallus, surrounds the city in 66 A.D., and he realizes that his supply lines are not as good as he had hoped. And you can't lay siege to a city like Jerusalem with walls like Jerusalem has and have a, 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 a not-so-good supply line. So he breaks, he surrounds the city, he breaks off the siege, he lifts the siege, and he goes back to Caesarea. And on his way back, these zealots chase him down and kill him. And the Romans aren't going to like that. So they're going to come back with another general called Vespasian, who one day is going to be emperor. So in 66 AD, they are going to see, they were like, oh boy, here they are. The armies are surrounding the city. How in the world are we going to get out? And then they leave. And if you're a believing Jew in Jerusalem, guess what? You've got your scripture here. Jesus said something about get out, (laughs) and they do. What is that deliverance? You didn't even know it was coming. You did not know how it was going to pan out. You had no clue how the details were going to go or what God was going to do. Who would have imagined such a thing? That supply lines wouldn't have been good enough for him to continue his siege. So as God messes with his supply lines, He provides you a way of escape. But you have to know the word. You have to know. This applies to all doctrine here. It's not just this instruction. You have to know what the Lord's word is so that when you see your window of opportunity, you take it. But what if you don't know this promise? Well, the army left. I guess we can stay. Right? Did all the Jews leave Jerusalem at this time? No. Josephus tells us that over a million Jews died in this siege. 1.1 million died. And they had to turn to actual cannibalism to survive, try to survive. The siege went on for years. Vespasian went back to Rome. His son Titus took over, and they annihilated the place. Just as Jesus said. And they set the temple on fire. So the, the fire in the temple melted all the gold. There's tons of gold in this temple. And as the gold melts, it runs between all the rocks and or the stones. And the Romans want to get at the gold. So they topple the stones over, just like Jesus said. And that's all the time we have. we got a lot of history to go. Like a ton. So much. But look at verse 28. <laughs> so then he's, he's going to give the sign of his coming. He's going to speak about that. And it's crazy. There's so much. Do you know the, the world's going to go dark? It's prophesied by Joel. It's prophesied by, uh, I think, Zechariah as well. That this is a time of darkness. The sun will stop shining. We don't know how. But this, the whole, the world, it, from context, it seems the whole world's going to go dark. Just like the plague in Egypt. 
Can you imagine? And in that darkness, there's going to be a flashing lightning. And that's the Lord. Your salvation is near. It's incredible. You know, the whole thing is incredible. And we're looking forward to it. So notice what he says in verse 28. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Here he goes again with these things. Could you be a little more specific? What things? Way back to the beginning of verse 7, verse 12, verse 20, what things? Ah, it's not for you to know. But here, does this apply to you? You bet it does. Does it apply to the saints in the tribulation? Sure. But here, where he says, you can't, uh, the word begin, archimai, this word means begin. And so he says, when these things, you have to say begin means go back to the beginning. We might be wrong in that, but even if we are, this applies to us. When these things begin to take place, straighten up, lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. You're already redeemed. The disciples that he's speaking to are already redeemed. They're saved people. This is not the redemption of your salvation. This is the redemption of your body. You're straighten up. And this is to us. Look up. Lift up your heads. Now, don't fall in a hole. Because a lot of people go, oh, I'm all looking up for Jesus all the time, and they don't do anything on earth. Like take care of their responsibilities in a manner that the Lord would. We're all called to do this. Be a husband, be a wife, be a child, be a worker, be a churchgoer, be a citizen, be a person in public as unto the Lord. You know, you're a light to the world. Don't be looking up all the time and miss all the people that God has put in your path that he's called you to serve. And don't forget, you're going to be judged for it. At the judgment seat of Christ, we're all going to be judged for our deeds, whether good or bad. If we've got our eyes pointed towards the clouds all the time. But I I find it, you know, it's not impossible. It's not not even that hard of a term. It's, It's not difficult to keep throughout your day remembering this is my future. My Lord is coming. This is my future. My Lord is coming. These birth pangs that uh, I'm, I'm suffering through at times. This tribulation that I'm in right now that looks hopeless. I will be delivered. Look up. And he says, straighten up. You know? Don't be bowed down with the burdens of the world. I'm coming quickly. So Alfred Edersheim, in his book, Life and Times of Jesus, says this. The particular attitude of the church with loins girt for work since the time was short and the Lord might come at any moment with her hands busy, her mind faithful, her bearing self-denying and devoted, her heart full of loving expectancy, her face upturned towards the sun that was so soon to rise and her straining to catch the first notes of heaven's song of triumph. All this would have been lost without the promise of the Lord's coming. We look to it every day. Nothing that you've done will be wasted 
that is done unto him. Let's pray. And thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the guidance of the truth. And there's so much in these promises and so much to know, Father. But as we take it in slowly in pieces, we as we build up to your future, to learn of your prophecies, we ask for your clarity as well as the application. As we've seen today, that we apply the fact that we will be delivered. Just like any saint in Jerusalem would have been delivered in that miraculous moment. <clears throat> we know, Father, that you're... Son is coming soon at any time. We know, Father, that the future is in your hands. We know that all the things that we don't yet know, you have fully under control. We need not fear. Seek first your kingdom. We thank you, Father, for that confidence. And may we do so with great joy. We ask in Christ's name, amen. I would uh, take our offering, and you can go from this air conditioner to the next. It's supposed to be 100 degrees today, I think. All right. All right, let's pray for our offering. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to give as your believer priests. We give to you in worship and in honor of you. And we thank you, Father, for the finances that you provide so that we can provide your teachings to whoever would listen. We thank you, Father, for these gifts. We pray for the offering in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Father, for our gathering. Thank you for uh, your tremendous love and the truth that you provide. We uh, offer in our closing moments to those who have, anyone listening who has not believed in Christ as their Savior, that you would please consider who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it's the most important decision you can make. It's such a, It's a life-changing decision because salvation is offered to you without cost, because Christ paid all the cost. The coin of the realm is his blood. He died for the sins of the whole world. And when he died, he was resurrected again. Um, Three days later, uh, resurrected and alive, now seated at the right hand of God. He, through his sacrifice, died for all of your sins. So if you believe upon him, you will be saved. So I beg you to please consider the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for all things, Father, in Christ's name, amen.